Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, the host of this show called Stand to Reason. And uh, again, I welcome you to our broadcast. Uh, still is a broadcast, too. We do the uh, Internet thing, and that's actually our biggest footprint, so to speak. But we still broadcast the show through the American Family Radio Network and glad to continue to be part of uh, of that group. Um, I have in front of me a letter from a uh, state representative in the state of Oregon. And uh, he, uh, somebody I've met and spent some time with and um, talked to him about, you know, the problems of governing in a very liberal environment, okay? And he's offering a reflection here and a question that I want to uh, speak to, to try to big, bring some clarity on an issue that we need to be more clear on. <clears throat> and that has to do with rights, and his observation is that more and more, especially this election cycle, the issue of abortion is going to be a really big deal, not just in state elections, but in national elections. Now, of course, since the Roe v. Wade decision recently that uh, nullified Roe v. Wade as a force, a constitutional force, basically it did not make abortion illegal, it just clarified that the Constitution does not um, provide uh, harbor, safe harbor, for abortion as a constitutional right. Okay, now it's left to the states to, this, to, to decide. I wish it would go further because I think there's more to be done here, but this is a move in the right direction. Of course, what this has done is radically inflamed the pro-abortion activists and those people who believe that one ought to have a right to kill their unborn child. And now I'm choosing my words um, carefully here, advisedly, and I'm not simply trying to make a rhetorical flourish. The only thing that might be inaccurate or imprecise is the word child, which is the word that is often used to characterize maybe a, an infant to a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old, and is not usually not usually or not necessarily applied to those who are unborn. So I could just amend it to say an unborn human being, the right to kill your unborn offspring, human offspring, because all of those are true. It is a mother's offspring. That's what grows in her womb, no doubt. And what's growing in her womb is a human being, also no duh. There's no religion involved there. <clears throat> All it is is science at this point. And then ethics, insofar as I'm saying that killing this individual human offspring in a mother's womb is wrong, that's the moral element, okay? So um, this is being viewed now. We have to make moves in the states across the board to make sure on a state level this is secured, because what the Supreme Court decision did was just kick it to the states. This is not secured by national uh, constitution, the U.S. Constitution, so people are trying to get it, um, I almost said entombed, <laughs> in state constitutions. No, but part of the language of state constitution. So there's not going to be any discussion anymore on a state level about whether uh, a woman has a right to an abortion, which is a right to kill her unborn human offspring, okay, at various stages of development. Now, um, 
so this has now taken on new uh, political uh, fervor, strength, momentum in our culture as we approach next year um, the election on a national level and also on a state level. And the comment this representative is making is that our society is deeply confused on what a right is and what a right is not. And they say health care is a right, and abortion is a right, and food security is a right, and trans surgeries are a right. And then ask the questions, are rights something made up by society, or is there more to it? Now, he has more in the note to me, but I, I just want to stop there and talk about that issue. What is a right? <clears throat> I remember speaking to the University of Southern California, USC. Um, I, I don't know if the, it was the Christian legal group or just some graduate legal group that I was asked to address. But after I gave my presentation, don't remember the topic, there was a woman who came up to me, a law student there at USC, and she said to me, very nice woman, uh, and calmly said to me, I'm an atheist animal rights activist. And what I said to her, and this isn't in classic uh, tactical style, I could have done better, but what I said to her is that you're going to have a difficult time making sense of that statement, that she's an atheist animal rights activist, uh, an atheist who believes in animal rights. And she said, um, what do you mean? And I said, what if I said, I have a right to half of your income to go to my organization, Stand to Reason. You said animals have rights not to be hurt. Actually, she did clarify that. I, she said, I think animals have a right not to be uh, harmed or hurt or have to suffer or something like that. And then I said, I think I have a right to half of your income. Tell me what the difference is between our two statements. Now, she was hard-pressed to tell the difference because she hadn't thought at all about what a right is. So let me offer you a definition. A right is a just claim to something. A right is a just claim to something. That is, it's something that you have coming to you in virtue of justice. Now, justice could be construed on two different levels, all right? Um, if you're 16 and passed the proper test and, uh, and pay the right fee, you have a right to a driver's license in the state of California, all right? Because what the state has done is set conditions upon which, if you fulfill the conditions, you get the liberty— the opportunity, the right to drive. And that right cannot be taken away from you unless you violate other restrictions. But notice, by the way, that this is a right that can be given by the state, given certain conditions, and can be taken away from you by the state as well. So if the state has the <clears throat> the latitude, the power, the force, the legitimacy to create a right for someone, that right is based on the authority of the state. Which state can remove 
that right anytime they want by their same authority. So yes, cultures can make rights. People can, can uh, or how does the question go, are rights just something made up by society, or is there more to it? Well, on one level, there is a there are rights made up by society, and I just offered that. Of course, the limitation is we understand that these are something invented or made up by the society, and the same society can take the right away by the same exercise of power. Okay, and that's that's the only the only claim you have to those kinds of rights is that the culture or the the legal institutions in power have given those rights, and you can lay clay to claim to them until that same institution removes those rights, okay? But what about other kinds of rights? Rights like the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, those are different. And in fact, in our founding documents in the Declaration, um, our founders made it clear that these are rights that are inalienable. <clears throat> that is, they can't be taken away from human structures because they are not given by human structures. These are rights that are given by God, and therefore they cannot be alienated or taken away or removed by some act of human will, all right? Um, or some act of human government, or ought not to be done so. And this is the argument, of course, of the Declaration. That's what was happening to the colonies, and therefore the colonies were in within their rights, as it were, to rebel against a tyrannous power that was violating and estranging them from life and liberty and other rights that were given to them by God. Notice the line of argument. There is an authority that gives these rights, but this authority is transcendent. It is above the government, and therefore the rights that are given by the transcendent authority are transcendent rights, and therefore can't be taken away by governments, or ought not be. Okay, now, so we have two ways that you might ground rights. You can ground a just claim to something in an act of law of some sort by a human government, which right is only just as long as the law is in place and it is followed properly. If the law is changed or the ex exceptions um, manifest themselves, you abuse your driving uh, privileges and so your driving rights are taken away, that's the way that works. They're not transcendent rights. The transcendent rights are grounded in something beyond us. Now, I want to make an observation here just so people are clear. If moral—well, let me back up—all rights claims are moral claims. All rights claims are moral claims. That means when we say we have a right to something, we are saying that someone else has a moral obligation to give us that which we have a right to. If it turns out that moral relativism is true, then there are no true moral claims of any kind. That means there are no legitimate claims to rights of any kind, because all claims to rights are moral claims, and if there are no moral truths, then there are no legitimate rights claims. And this is especially true <clears throat> of transcendent rights claims. Rights that are given by government are just actually exercises of power. That's all they are. 
So you could have exercises of power based on what the government decrees as best in their thinking for the time that they decree it, and then they could take it away any time they want. But notice that when we are objecting to a government in the way they are treating people, just like our founders did with the Declaration, the only way we can make an appeal to, a, uh, to, to rights that are being or with regards to rights that are being violated, is by appealing to a higher power, a law above the law. If there is no law above the law, there is no foundation for making a higher appeal. There is just an appeal to human power. So what's interesting to me is that there are many people who don't believe in God. He's not... uh, he's not in the picture at all, that are making all of these claims to having rights to things that the government hasn't declared as their right. On what basis do you you declare that you have a right to an abortion, for example, or a right to uh, food security, or a right to trans surgeries, or a right to health care? Remember, I said that a right is a just claim to something. It's not just a claim to something. You can't just say it's so, and it makes it so. Otherwise, as I mentioned to this young lady uh, at USC, I can claim the right to have half of her income being given to stand to reason. Now, of course, that's ludicrous. Why? Because I have no claim to that. I have no just claim to that. The government hasn't determined that that's necessary, and there's no higher court than I can appeal to for that particular claim. By the same token, on what basis does someone say, I'm an atheist, but I believe that animals have rights? Where do they get those rights? You're an atheist. There, are, there aren't there, there are no higher order morality, no higher order just uh, requirements for people. So how can there be a just claim to a right for animal rights if there is no God? And by the way, if there is a God, I don't know how there can be such a claim either. I mean, certainly in principle there could be, but in actuality, only if God has given those kinds of rights to animals, which I have no reason to think that he has. Now, it doesn't mean it's okay to mistreat animals however you want, because actually the Bible says that we should have regard for the life of our beast kind of thing. But beasts are beasts. They're not human beings. They're not on the same par. All of this goes to a grounding issue. If we're going to make a claim to a right and it is a just claim that it is, an, is it a morally appropriate claim. First of all, there has to be moral, moral obligations. And in relativism, there are no objective moral obligations. And uh, secondly, we've got to show um, how that right is derived from universal moral obligations, if we believe in those. And that's incumbent upon us to do that. And what the founders did is they identified a series of what, what, are, what are classically called negative rights. In other words, these are rights given to us by our Creator, which cannot be taken away legitimately, that really are rights not to get something, but to be, and essentially, to be left alone. 
All right. Leave me alone in my speech. Leave me alone in my ability to defend myself with a weapon. Leave me alone with my ability to gather together for following religion as I wish. This is elements of the Bill of Rights. These are called negative rights because they don't create any obligation on other people to give something. It just creates the obligation to leave people alone and to exercise their liberties. The rights that I just offered, health care is a right, abortion is a right, food security is a right, trans surgeries are a right, are called positive rights. That means there is an obligation from the get-go, since this right is in place, according to the claim, that people be given these things. Now, here's the problem, and I don't know why—I've almost never heard this brought up, but it occurs to me every single time I hear something like this. I have a right to job security. I have a right to a living wage. There's another one. This is a positive right. It creates an obligation on others to provide something for us. But let's take the right to food security, that everyone has a right to have enough food to live on. All right. Every right that a person has creates an obligation on others. Negative rights, as I pointed out, merely create the obligation to leave others alone, right? Positive rights, though, create an obligation to give something to others. So if, if everyone has a right to food, then nobody is obliged to do anything first to get the food because it's owed to them. So here we are, the whole population of the world who has a right to be fed. If we are all sitting there possessing a right to be fed, who is going to feed us? Everyone has the right to be fed. Where is the food going to come from? Or where um, is the health care going to come from? Or where is the abortion going to come from? If everybody, well, maybe that's not as good of an illustration, but health care is one. Notice that if we all are just sitting here and we have a right to be given this, who is going to give it to us? And that's what's wrong with these positive rights. It makes a demand on other people that's in many cases impossible to fulfill. Just like I said, if we all have a right to food, then that means somebody has an obligation to give it to me, and I don't need to do anything. But the person who has the obligation to give it to me also has a right to be given the food himself, right? If it's a human right. You see the problem there. Okay. So, just to put it simply, as I mentioned, rights are just claims to things. That is, they are appropriate claims because there's a moral obligation to do it. All right? And they are not merely claims to something. They are not just claims to something. They are not just, I get to say it, and there it's true. But this is, seems to me what it, what's going on. I think people ought to all have enough food to, to survive. Okay, yeah, okay, where are you going to get it? Well, that means somebody's got to give it to me. Well, maybe that means you have to get the food to give to somebody else. And if you're getting the food to give to somebody else that has a right to the food, why don't you get your own food for yourself? See the point. This is the problem with positive rights. Very different from the negative rights that we see affirmed 
in the Constitution that are transcendent rights, because these are rights essentially to be left alone to our personal liberty of various sorts. When you come to positive rights, invoking an obligation for someone to give you something you don't have, you've got to justify that. You've got to demonstrate that there's a moral obligation to do that. And then the question is going to become, if everybody has a moral obligation, uh, let's see, if, if everyone has a moral claim on these things, like food, then who is the one that is morally obliged to give them those things? See the problem? Anyway, um, so yes, in some sense, rights are something made up by society. Those are legal rights, and those legal rights can be taken away just as easily as they're given. Transcendent rights, though, that's based on transcendent moral law, and in order to have transcendent moral law, you're going to have to have a transcendent moral law maker, okay? And that's why it doesn't make sense to say that there is a transcendent moral law to give animals rights, yet at the same time, there is no transcendent moral lawmaker to provide those rights for them. Something to chew on there. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get to uh, our whole bank of calls that we got on board today. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. friends. Uh, we are beginning the month of December, which is um, financially the most important month of the year for us at Stand to Reason. And uh, therefore, we have our kind of end of year strategy. And uh, you know, I don't talk to you about this very often, because my basic confidence is if we are giving to you in a significant way, 
then you're going to respond by giving to us uh, so that we can keep giving to you and to other people. And the fact is, uh, this is our 30th anniversary. Uh, we have a, a work ethic that um, is very simple and straightforward. Actually, I think of uh, baseball legend Cal Ripken, who became famous because he showed up for work for every game 2,632 times in a row. And he was great because he was consistent. And this is what we aim to be at Stan DeRisa. We don't swing for the fences. We just hit singles and doubles, singles and doubles. And over time, all of those base hits have really added up for us. And you know, because you've been the, re- the beneficiaries of that effort. And I'm just thinking of just this last year. Um, a few examples. We've trained over 12,000 students and leaders at the Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. Uh, we launched 88 outposts, 31 states, four countries. We've added seven new STR University courses, which have equipped over 10,000 believers online. Okay, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's been accomplished this last year. I can go on and on and on. But this is one reason why we look to the end of the year, and I'm really excited that we have, uh, in honor of Standard Reason's 30th anniversary, a dedicated group of STR partners that have pledged over $300,000 this month to challenge you and our other friends to give generously to collectively equal or hopefully exceed that gift. So they're showing up, just like we've been showing up for 30 years, with their challenge gift of $300,000, and they're asking you if you'll accept that, that challenge. And I hope you do. And sometime this month, by the end of the month, or right now, go to our website, and uh, we have, I don't know, what to say, donate button there somewhere, or when we send our material to you. There's lots of ways you can give to Stand a Reason, lots of means by which you can do that. Um, make this the month that you give generously to STR to hopefully either match or surpass that challenge that's offered. And uh, to say thanks, I'm going to send you a signed copy of my sequel to Tactics, and that's, you know the title, we've been talking about it a lot, Street Smarts, subtitled Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Now, I really want you to have this book. Uh, it's It takes the next step. It's like the third step of the tactical game plan on steroids, and it's going to really help you deal with the challenges that you're facing in the culture today. And now through December 27th, that's the cutoff date uh, for the gift, I'll send you a signed copy of Street Smarts with a gift of any size to stand to reason. Uh, here it is. You can go to str.org. I didn't have my notes in front of me there. Slash donate to make your gift. All right. That's simple. Um, and then if you do that, be sure to click the box that says that you'd like to receive the book and we'll send it out to you right away. So here's my commitment to you. We're going to keep showing up every day. We're going to keep facing each obstacle. We're going to keep scoring our runs one base at a time. And, uh, and that's why I'm asking you to be generous to stand to reason today, this month, make a difference, meet the challenge, surpass the challenge, okay? Help us keep hitting those singles and doubles together, moving the kingdom forward one base at a time, all right? And I'll thank you in advance for that. All right, let's, um, <clears throat> boy, I got a lot of tough questions here. Um, let's go with uh, Anonymous here on uh, the first line. Anonymous, welcome to Stand to Reason. Hey, Greg. Hey. Um, so, yeah, I'm a first-time caller, um, long-time listener, though, uh, mm. so it's a privilege speaking with you. Mm. Um, Thank you. 
I've, you've, you've said in the past that you've, you're mentoring people that you haven't even met, and mm. I'm definitely one of those people. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, that's why I'm calling. Uh, and also, uh, my wife and I have, have been strategic partners for about 10 years. Wow. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, uh, like I'm, like uh, Amy probably let you know, my wife is pursuing divorce. Um, so it's not on the basis of adultery or mm-hmm. abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just calling to get your counsel on, like, what steps I should be taking going forward, mm-hmm. uh, given that she does not want to make the relationship work and doesn't think it can work. And there's also, uh, there's also a lot of distrust that's been built up mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of me. So yeah, just, yeah, sorry for the tough question. <laughs> no, well, look at, it's a lot, it's a lot more tough for you uh, than uh-huh. it is for me to respond to this. And uh, yeah. I just want you to know my heart goes out to you because this has got to be a, a really difficult circumstance. Um, and um, the, the thought that comes to mind is that relationships take two. Um, and if you have someone who is uh, committed to leaving, which sounds like is the case with your wife, apparently you've approached her and talked to her about working things out and what can I do? What can we do? Can we see somebody? Can we counsel with a pastor? Can we counsel with uh, somebody certified as a marriage and family counselor that can help us make it work? My sense is, just from the little you've said, is that she says, not interested in that. I'm on my way out. Is it? Am I accurate in that? Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I've, I've brought that up before, and it was her response um, was kind of like, too little, too late. Um, hmm. Like, I've why, why, why now mm-hmm. are you trying to save it? Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like there's a history well, then. She says, too little, too late. So apparently yeah. you've been dealing with things over time. Well, it, yeah, kind of. Um, I'm, I'm not one to uh, really open up much, and mm-hmm. I, that's been a big part of the problem. Uh-huh. Um, I'm more of a reserved person. Right. Um, and she's very, she's a very emotive person and, and mm-hmm. thrives off of that, thrives right. off of um, um, a lot of... A more expressive, um, you know, relationship. Well, yeah, I tell you what, time. you you may not be very forward with your thoughts and feelings and stuff, but it took a lot of courage just to call me on the air yeah. to talk about this. So that's yeah. that's a, maybe a break. Um, people, you know, I'm speaking very general terms because I don't know your circumstances, but it, as you yeah. indicated, there's a history here, and the history has resulted in a lack of trust. I don't know what, what breaches of trust there have been, if any. I mean, sometimes there you know, there's a lack of trust, even though there's not any genuine breaches of trust. There's there are perceptions about that, but, you know, people, emotions are hard to understand sometimes, all right? But mm-hmm. if if you are aware of breaches that you're responsible for and you want to repair the relationship, this is the time to muster the courage to give an honest and a genuine um, apology, confession, repentance kind of thing. Apparently she's aware that you're trying. That's yeah, why she, she says, yeah. too little, too late. Uh, I'm not sure why it has to be too late. And maybe it's not enough. And maybe what more does she want? 
if she says too little, okay, then what more does she want? Um, I, I understand the concept of too little, too late, all right? But when there is a um, a, a uh, wounded relationship, it seems to me when there is someone that is part of the relationship who is willing to say, I love you, I'm committed to you, I made a promise to you, and I want to make it right, what does that look like? In most cases, unless there's been physical abuse, or if there has been sexual infidelity, or, and I don't, you don't have to give the nod to any of this, or if the, the injured or wounded spouse, your wife in this case, is not already involved in another relationship. Okay, if those three things are not on the table, they're not factors, um, generally, there's hope for a change. If those factors are on the table, those are much more difficult things to overcome. doesn't mean they can't be overcome, but they're more difficult, and I think for obvious reasons. But um, divorce is a hard choice to make. When I say hard choice, I don't mean it's just emotionally difficult to say, I want to get divorced. That's hard. What's hard is carrying through. Do you have any children? Yes, we have five. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So going through a divorce then requires restructuring your entire lives mm -hmm. and requires damage control on the children. And uh, and you know this, so so many times, what people are re, re I say kind of reacting, and maybe this is like a law in a, a long time coming in your case for your wife. That's the way she views it, but still, it's a, the the thought is I'm going to get rid of trouble, problems. I'm going to be be released from pain and difficulty by getting a divorce. And what is not frequently adequately factored into that decision, apart from the moral question before God, whether it's legitimate, that to me is a huge one for people to consider, especially people who count themselves as followers of Christ. But just on a practical basis, what they haven't considered is all of the difficulty that is now entailed you know, reorienting your entire financial set of circumstances, okay? Finding new places to live, liquidating property, facing a court and deciding what are we going to do with the children? Who's going to take the children? How long and when? And then you got all that visitation. This stuff is really difficult. And in many cases, when people, when they really get a, a full, firm sense of what's involved there, much more difficult than trying to fix the relationship. And uh, so it's it's like, I, I have a friend who wrote a book, and the title is, Before You Say I Don't, or I Won't, or whatever. It's a playoff on I Will, or I Do. Yeah. Consider all of these things. And I'm not sure if your wife has done that. What is entailed here? All the legal expense, all the headache, all the heartache on both sides. It's got to be hard for her, as well as for you. And that's why, in in a certain just on a, in a certain sense, just on a pragmatic basis, not even considering the moral element, on a pragmatic basis, um, it's 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 going to be much harder. In many cases to be to get a divorce than to work out your difficulties, 
and uh, it might be working it out with fear and trembling. And um, I'm a married man. I understand that marriage can be very challenging. All right. So uh, I'm not I'm not trying to give the short shrift to the difficulties there or the issues of forgiveness, the issues of trust. I get it. Um, if I were you, I would try to do everything I could um, with your with your hat in your hand. And I don't I don't even know how much responsibility you think you have for the way things are, or how much you think that you need to seek forgiveness and to amend your ways or whatever. But my my suspicion is, apart from those three circumstances where there has been physical abuse or infidelity on the husband's part, or the wife doesn't isn't already in another relationship, apart from those, I think the chances of a, of a woman saying, you know, okay, I'm going to I'm going to believe you, I'm going to take you at your word, and we're going to work this out. Um, I think the chances are good if there is genuine repentance confession and repentance to her regarding the things that 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 are your 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 baggage or whatever that you bring to the relationship um i will say this though it's rarely that one person is responsible for the difficulties generally not all the time i think there are exceptions um i i'm uncomfortable with people saying it's always the two of you that are doing it but um, usually there is there is responsibility and uh, and and blame, if you will, that go on both sides, and there are things that need to be addressed from both sides. If there's a commitment to stay married, then there are going to be compromises that have to be made and adjustments that have to be made. Um, and that's part of what the promise was. Remember, the promise wasn't until death do us part. It was that, but not only that. It was to have and to hold. It is to love and to cherish in sickness or health for better, for worse, worse until death do us part. And I think a lot of times people aren't doing those other things, having and holding, loving and cherishing, working at doing that, because that is a labor, especially in problematic relationships. So I would say fight for your marriage. I don't know what that looks like in your specific circumstance, but I know what it looks like in principle, and that's what I've tried to outline for you. Okay. Fight for your marriage. Show your wife you love her and that you want to yeah. fulfill your obligations, your commitment. <clears throat> Not just to fulfill an obligation like it's a duty, but your heart is in being the right kind of husband to her, the one you promised to be. And yeah. uh, you want her heart to be in being the right kind of wife to you that she promised to be as well. And I think that's okay. the best I can do for you under the circumstances. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Does that help somewhat? It does. Yeah, All it right. does. Yeah. Well, God keep you. May he keep you both, and may he bring you both back together for, for your sake as well as for the kingdom's sake. All right? Amen. Yeah. Thank you for your call. All right. Thanks, Greg. All right. Bye-bye. What a start. And by the way, it, I'm not, in a sense, um, what's the word? I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying this, acting this way like, wow, because that's just hard for me to deal with. It's because it's a hard issue, and relationships are hard. 
And sometimes relationships get to a difficult point like this. And that's when we have to double down and work really hard to make it work and do everything within our individual ability to carry out what we planned that day we both walked down the aisle and made a pledge before God and our friends. All right, let's um okay. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh Jason in California. Jason, uh welcome to the show. Hi Greg. Hey. I have a uh, moral question for you. All right. So not long ago, I was teaching my kids pro-life apologetics. Mm -hmm. And in that context, my daughter asked, you know, if abortion is as evil as we think it is, and it is, then why aren't we doing more to stop it in this country? Why are we allowing it? Mm -hmm. And she wasn't referring to the legal context is, you know, why are Americans generally allowing abortion? Mm -hmm. But more specifically to pro-lifers, mm -hmm. why aren't we doing more to stop it? You know, we engage in individual persuasion, we work within the laws to try to change the laws, um, but why aren't we physically intervening to stop these doctors from murdering innocent children? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the same way that if we were on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic, and we saw a man who was attempting to kill a toddler, we would intervene and we would use lethal force if we had to in order to stop him from killing the baby. Mm -hmm. So why do we then not use physical force and lethal force, if necessary, to stop yeah. the abortionist who is going to walk into that clinic to kill the babies that are sitting inside of that mm -hmm. clinic? Well, this is a very challenging question, and I've actually, it's been a long time since I had this, and I've written about this, and we have an abortion uh, violence statement um, on our website. It, I'm not sure exactly how to get to it, so it, it, it explains in more precise policy terms our view here. Okay, uh, Amy says she's going to link to it, um, you know, in the show notes. But... Um, for, since you're asking a moral question, the the, the, moral, the morality of an action is not just determined by the end in view, but by the means that you're using to accomplish the end, all right? And we are not given the liberty in a circumstance like this, and I, I don't think that this is exactly the same as a circumstance where... Um, as your daughter illustrated, someone is out there harming another child on the street or whatever, and you are uh, choosing to intervene to stop the harm in, in using violence and maybe even lethal force to do that. The circumstance that we're facing here is quite different because these, this is state-sanctioned, for one, and there are protective measures for another. And you have the mother, in the case of abortion, who is going along with the efforts of the the, uh, the the doctor to take the life of the child. And so even if you intervene and kill the doctor, that doesn't mean you're going to save the child. All right? She's probably just going to go to another abortionist. And then, so your action, which is a, an action that, you know, part of my argument is going to be, is going to rend the fabric of the social contract, cause more harm than good, and really in the long term, result in more babies dying, not fewer babies dying, 
your action then using those means to accomplish those ends would not be morally justified. The other things that we do, even aggressively, and there was a time when uh, people physically blocked the abortion to the uh, the entrance to an abortion clinic. Okay, and this was called rescue, and there was a whole season of those rescues, which resulted, by the way, in a federal law that made it illegal, a federal offense, to block an abortion clinic door, and then also established a a kind of arc of uh, no trespassing, a buffer zone of sorts. Um, from those people who are demonstrating against abortion. So what ended up happening because of these kinds of actions, there's a, you know, a, a, a kind of violence that's being used. It was kind of a passive, uh, well, like you say, it's not violence in the sense of bringing harm to individuals, but it was also, but it was violent in the fact that it was blocking these clinics. This actually turned out not for the good for the cause of the pro-life issue, but it actually hurt. And so all of these things have to be taken into consideration, okay? I don't think the illustration that was offered uh, by your daughter is a parallel. And I, I and the things I've wrote, written about, I've, I've, uh, I've offered uh, characterizations of that, and also we have that statement. But um, as to the question, why don't pro-lifers, those who say they're pro-life, uh, do more? That's a fair question, because a lot more could be done. How is it that you have 65% of the people in this country that self-identify as Christians, but then we have abortion on demand in many states now? Many states are, have, have not provided for that, have outlawed yeah. it, and that's what the Supreme Court decision allowed them to do. But still, in many states, we have not only not only is it legal, but they're championing it here in the state of California, the Golden State. They have ads across the nation saying, come out to California to get your abortion. And in many cases, that will be funded by organizations that are willing to fund a woman's abortion. It, it, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. But I hope that at least begins to help you make sense of the moral equation a little bit. Well, well I've, I've heard, back when George Tiller was killed, I'd done a lot of research into this and mm-hmm. you know, read different statements, including STRs, I think, back mm-hmm. then. Good. And lots of you know pro-life organizations and apologists were weighing in. And a lot of the rationale that I heard was similar along the lines you just offered, but those seem to me more practical reasons as to why we would not want to take that approach. But looking at it purely from the moral perspective, like what does God think of it? If you were to kill an abortionist, I'm not asking this because I want to or hope anybody else does. I'm just right. trying to get right. Moral well, object. you can't separate you know, the. So. <laughs> no, I understand, but you 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 can't separate the the practical from the moral because all of these things have to be taken into consideration. The the um, the question is, what is the ultimate end that will be accomplished, and whether yeah. the means that you're using to the end is also uh-huh. a moral end? Is the I'm sorry, moral means? Both of those things have to be taken into consideration and weighed in balance. Uh, right. Our conclusion, with just about everybody else who's thinking about this, is saying this is not a moral means to an end, and the end is not even going to be accomplished anyway. So that enters into the moral equation, the consequence, what you're actually accomplishing by your effort. That's all part of the moral equation. And so, to answer your very specific question about God, from God's perspective, that would be wrong. So, going back to the guy on the sidewalk who's trying to kill the toddler, I mean, what, what if our laws were such that rather than society 
seeing that as a good thing. We said, no, that's a bad thing, that you should not intervene. That Let's say that they allowed parents to kill their children up to two years old, and, and this is a parent killing their one-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah. You know, with the legal situation would change, I would still think if it's happening right in front of you, you know, no matter what the law says— how could we stand by and not intervene? And I can't see how God would say, if, if I chose to intervene, despite the fact that it was illegal, okay. despite the fact that you know, it might have bad consequences for me, that God would say I had done a morally evil thing mm-hmm. by, using, by using lethal force to stop this guy from killing a toddler. Yeah. Okay, so here's my response. And my response is that you've offered a hypothetical that is not the actual. The question is about the actual, okay? Not any kind of hypotheticals. Under the circumstances that we face right now, under the laws we face, under the moral obligations we have before God, under an assessment of means and ends to this particular issue in this circumstance, I'm going to stand on my conviction that taking the life of an abortionist is immoral. And I think God holds that view as well. So I'm just going to have to leave it at that, um, Jason, because I got two more callers and I got about 10 minutes, not even that, to uh, to get them. Thank you for your call, though, and I hope that helps. Uh, let's go to uh, Blair. Wait, is that right? Do I want Blair? Number Yeah, number three. Blair, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, I have a question about uh, decision in the will of God, which right. you said a little bit about. And I agree with your teaching on the subject, so thank you. Okay, so, thank um, you. My question is related to an application. So in your teaching, you give some principles, like for marriage. There's clear principles in the Bible about who is the suitable mate, at least Correct. he rules out some. I'm looking for principles related to facing danger, or the risk of danger. And I think... I mean, my perspective is that I think we're too hung up on safety, okay? So, uh, but when we're faced with danger, we need to, I think, assess it, decide whether either to avoid it or go in eyes wide open to the danger. And I guess my question is, how much danger is too much danger? Yeah, and I think that's kind of hard to answer biblically because— I suspect, well, I'm not sure if you're talking about, like, recreational danger, like skydiving or something like that, or no, you're talking about... or just, just, like, make a career choice for a young person. Should I go in the military? You know, parents are probably saying, no, don't do that, it's too dangerous. Well, that's what mom's saying. That's not what dad's always saying. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, but well, yes, it is dangerous, but yeah. there is also a place for a protective body yeah. to keep harm from innocent people. Yeah. And that's true with police force, and yeah. that's true with uh, fire departments, first responders in general, and this is also true of military. Yeah. So the idea, the purpose of the military is to, is to kill and destroy. <laughs> that's yeah. the purpose, as a deterrent to greater killing and right. greater destruction. Yeah. That's the good purpose. Now, if a person wants to lay their life on the line for that purpose, this is called a supererogatory act. That means going above and beyond the call of duty, mm-hmm. doing what is not required of you, but you're willing to give and take the risk for yeah. the benefit of somebody else. That's what heroism is. So I, I don't see any problem with that at all in the instances that you mentioned. Okay. Now, we, we do have a couple of examples, you know, in, in, for persecution, for example, Exactly. In the book of Acts, notice that Paul fled persecution when he could. 
yep. get lower down in the basket, you know, they're early out in the Book of Acts, they're at Damascus. And, um, so we're not to try to run towards persecution, we're to avoid it if we possibly can. But we don't avoid it if it means a compromise of what is what is right before God, and that's why in the early chapters of the of the uh, the Book of Acts, the disciples have said, you, you know, you have to decide whether it's right for us to obey God rather than men. But for us, we cannot stop speaking that which we've seen or heard. So, I mean, that the, the violence there on that issue, I think it's it's great to try to avoid it, depending yeah. on the circumstances. But if you want to put your life on the line. Yeah. For the benefit of others, even if you're... Look, we just had the four-year anniversary of the uh, borderline shooting, which happened a mile from yeah. my house, and I was 14 or 15 or something, uh, were killed. And uh, there were a lot of heroes there, people who c- created a human shield protecting women, men who did this. They took their lives in their hands to gather the women and protect them and then to break through doors and windows to get other people out and to ferry them out while they themselves were vulnerable to harm. That's called heroism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great thing. Yep. So, all right? I've got yep. a, I got another call around and I got four minutes, so I'm going to run. Appreciate it. Okay, Blair. Yeah, night. thank you for that call. And let's talk to Summer. You made it. Hi, Greg. Hi How there. Are you? I'm okay. I'm sorry we got so such little time here, about four minutes to go. Tell me what your question is, and I'll try to oh, answer no, it quickly. Okay. Um, so I, first of all, I really appreciate all the content that you guys have on decision-making and the will of God and uh-huh. prayer. Um, but one thing that I have found that I have personally struggled with, because I kind of grew up my whole life with the narrative that prayer is a two-way re- uh, relationship, you uh-huh. know, a conversation. Sure. And so, obviously, since I know that that's not biblical, it's been hard for me to adjust to how to pray in a biblical sense and okay. connect to God and have a relationship with Him. Sure. That doesn't entail me talking to Him and Him talking to me. Right. So could you help me with that? Yeah, I'll try to, okay, because um, I work at trying to nurture my relationship with God on a regular basis. And when I say my relationship with God, we know that we are in relationship in virtue of what Jesus did for us. So I'm not going to get God any closer to me or get God to like me any better kind of thing. But we're talking about an affective element, how we feel closer to God. And I know that people will feel closer to God if they believe that God is talking to them personally. And that's mm-hmm. that's actually a liability in the sense that because there's a strong emotional attraction to that view, um, people latch on to it, all right? And though it's not biblical, because the two-way conversation idea is not in the New Testament. There's not any teaching on prayer that says that we have to pray and then we listen to God. It's not there at all in Scripture. So I'm glad that you're adopting a good approach, the proper approach, but at the same time, I'm sympathetic that you're wondering, okay, now there's something seems to be missing. And I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. The thing that it seems to be missing wasn't there to begin with. In other words, yes. the fact that you thought God was talking to you when he wasn't doesn't mean that God was closer to you, okay? What, mm-hmm. uh, what the biblical method is, and there's Jesus, you know, he's giving in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, pray this way, and he gives a model prayer. Now, Kevin DeYoung, and you could just write that name down, K-E-V-I-N-D-E-Y-O-U-N-G. Kevin DeYoung has written a marvelous mm-hmm. little piece on uh, on the Lord's Prayer that I benefited tremendously from, and I encourage you to read that. But um, 
I think what is required here is for us to is to approach God in a deeply personal way to talk to him. Okay? And then expect God to speak to us through the word that he's given us. And not every part speaks to us. I read through the Psalms at night. You know, I'm, I'm hitting one or two Psalms before I go to bed. I'm laying in bed, and I say, God, I don't know what this has to do with me, frankly. You know, <laughs> there's other times I'm, I'm praying some of these lines because they perfectly express my emotions before God, and I pray these lines before God. And so there's that kind of investment in the Word, I think, that can help create a deepening sense of intimacy with God. All right. What we can't do, and you already know this, but I'm just reinforcing this. What we can't do is, is try to latch on to a non-biblical motif, like hearing the voice mm-hmm. of God, to increase our sense of closeness to Him. That is not what He's desired from us. He hasn't promised that we'd be able to hear His voice in the way people have characterized it. He's asked us to come to Him and be devoted to prayer and watchful regarding prayer, and to pray in particular ways, and to pray in holy ways. You know, that, in other words, we're, you know, being careful for husbands not to mistreat our wives, or else our prayers might be hindered. So there's a lot that the New Testament says about prayer, and I just encourage you to seek to apply that on a regular basis, knowing that God is there with you and listening, even though He's not talking back to you. Sound good? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, You're so welcome, Summer. It's always great to talk to you. All right, friends, there's my music. It's the end of our session here. Thank you for being part of it. Don't forget, it's our last month, Stand a Reason. Love to send you that book for any gift by the 27th of December to Stand a Reason. Go out and give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.